Welcome to episode 80 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy features conversations in Canadian theatre with artists of all stripes, from actor to director to playwright and more. If you want to drop me a line, I'd love to hear from you. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at stageworthypodcast.com. We're in the midst of fringe festival season, and as I record this, festivals in London, Ottawa, and Montreal are in full swing, and we're heading towards the Toronto Fringe Festival. In the coming weeks, I'll be sharing interviews with fringe artists from all over, and you may have already heard my interviews with Maureen Gautierio and Caitlin and Sean from Sex T-Rex, but if you haven't, I highly recommend going back and listening to them. You can find them and all past episodes of Stageworthy on Apple Podcasts, Google Music, or whatever podcast app you use. My guests today are Tanisha Tate and Stephen Elliott Jackson, the director and playwright, respectively, of The Seat Next to the King, the winner of the 2017 Toronto Fringe Festival New Play Contest. Are you guys in rehearsal already? Or you, yes. Uh, yeah? How long have you been rehearsing? Um, we've had three so far. Okay. Okay. So just, just really getting started. Just getting started. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's good. It's good. It's, you know, it's good to be compressed like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and uh, The Seat Next to the King, that is, uh, that won the, 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 playwright, the playwriting contest? For yeah. It won the Best New Play Contest nice. at the Toronto Fringe. So nice. uh, out of like 70 plays, it was selected. So... And that gives you a, a spot in the fringe, so you don't have to go through that whole lottery thing. <laughs> Which is good, because I, I really, I'm really i really bad at the lottery, so, <laughs> so I just have to write a really good play, and I, then I, I get in. No pressure, because so, yeah. you know, everybody else just like decides what they're going to do if they get in. Um, I think oh, I most know. people are know. bad at the lottery. I, I, well, I mean, it is 700 entries in this 16 <laughs> category. The but. thing about the lottery is that most people who apply don't even have a play. I know. That is one thing that's always annoyed me. Yeah. Just as a, I always feel like there should be like two categories people who don't have a play yet, people who do. Those of you who do, great. Send us your script. Oh, you've got a script? Good. You can stay in this lottery. Something like that. Well, and, and you can tell when people are writing the descriptions in the book. That they're not quite sure they do have a something going on. And I, yeah. I, I love reading the descriptions because it's like, mm, I'm not sure they have something yet. I, the descriptions are always fun because you can tell the people who like know what they've got. Yeah. And the people who are like, I don't know, I just need to write a thing. Yeah. Just a couple of sentences. That's yeah. all I really need. So painful. Very much so. Did you guys know each other before this project? No. no. Okay. Um, no, actually, I was on the jury okay. for the new play contest. And... I had to read a whole swath of plays, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, when I read Stevens, um, which was one, which was on our final short list of about sixteen, I just really loved it, and it was the only play that when I read it, I was still still thinking about it a few days after. Mm-hmm. And so when we had our final jury meeting, and Stevens' play won, his was the only play that all of the juries had ranked in their top three. Okay, um, I had ranked it first, and a couple days after. I was just thinking, I really love this play. Like, I don't just want to be a juror. I want to be involved in this play. Yeah. And so I called um, called my friend uh, Lucy, who's the GM of The Fringe, and I said, Lucy, I've been thinking about this play that won, and I, I 
think I want to direct it. Can you give me Stephen's phone number or his email address or something? Because I want to talk to him. And she's like, sure, like, go ahead. And um, so I got in touch with him. I told him that I loved the play. And then we just agreed to have a meeting. And we met and got along really well. And at the time of, at the time of the meeting, I still didn't know if he was going to let me do it, though. I was just, <laughs> I was just pitching. Yeah. Is the, is the, is the, the, the jury selection process that blind? You don't know who the author is? You don't know? You have no clue. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. And I guess you only find out when, like, they announced who won. You only find out when they when you pick the name of the play that's mm-hmm. won... They mm. say, okay, this play is by Stephen okay. L. Jackson. Nice, yeah. nice. Yeah. That's good. Um, and uh, how often, like, is this, how many plays have you directed before? I've directed 23 productions of 17 plays. Okay, so there have been some remounts that's, in there. That's, a, that's an impressive number. That's, a that's lot. good. <laughs> um, can we, I, I'd love to talk to you about uh, your, the work that you've done. Uh, previous to this like uh, is there like if somebody says what's a play that your favorite play that you've directed can you name one or I mean there's like 23 productions that's a difficult like 17 plays it's a difficult thing to do but I'm just curious like which one would be your calling card a calling card holy that's hard (laughs) no that really is hard because every play I have such a different and unique Hmm. experience with um and some were ones that you've written as well, and too. A couple, yeah, and a couple... Uh, although I've never directed my own plays. Mm. Interesting. It's yeah. not, not a bad idea. I don't yeah. think I would do it. I wouldn't direct one of mine. I, I mean, I would I would love to at some point. It's just that the first two plays I wrote, I was... I mean, being such a neophyte playwright, I just didn't feel that... Mm-hmm. It, the first play that I ever wrote, um, I was in. And I think actually part of playwriting... Sorry, I'm totally digressing from your no, question. No, absolutely. I don't, but part of playwriting for me is that being an actor, and I'm an actor... It gives you an opportunity to write roles for yourself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that you would love to play when you're not, you know, doing a lot of acting. And, um, yeah, when I'm in something, I have no interest, obviously, in trying to be in it and direct it at the same time. So I've always hired directors mm-hmm. that uh, that I think would serve the piece well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is there a play that you can think of that's like, if somebody says, you know, which one is your calling card? Is there is there one? or? If there's not, that's okay, because they're so diverse that, that it'd be hard to name one. I need to... I, I honestly need to think about that more. Sure, I mean, I, wrote, if, I, if I directed a play a few years ago, and the, the author's name... The playwright's name just flew out of my head, called The White Rose, mm-hmm. which I loved. Um, I don't know if you know the story of The White Rose, but... Oh, was that the World War... Yep. The World War II White yes. Rose? Yes. Yeah. And World War I White Rose. The World yeah. War I White Rose, and it was amazing. Mm-hmm. It was four... Five... Um, young Aryan students. No, it was World War II. It was World War II. Oh, okay. There's five young Aryan students who were uh, very kind of covertly trying to topple the Third Reich mm-hmm. by spreading, um, by printing and spreading pamphlets about what Hitler was up to. And they were doing it um, on very much on the down low. And they were caught and they were all guillotined. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was five, four, four men and one woman named Sophie Scholl. Oh, I've heard Sophie Scholl. Yeah, yeah. And she mm-hmm. was just this incredible, fierce woman who was given the opportunity to be released, and she refused to be relieved, and she stayed and died with her brother. Mm. It was mm-hmm. it, that was a really, really powerful and beautiful show to do, and I think it was probably the most challenging show that I'd done up, up until that point. 
and um, just kind of the furthest removed from what I had done up until that point. Is there a particular, like, what was the most challenging about that? Um, it was the first show that I had done centered around real people. Mm -hmm. So whenever you're telling a historical story, there's so much, Mm -hmm. um, you you just feel such a sense of obligation to get it right. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the play that I did that had the most people that were unlike me, because I had to go and hire a cast of, like, seven very Aryan-looking men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that was really interesting. It ended up being, like, one of the sweetest casts I've ever worked with. Um, but, yeah, I think knowing that there were people that were alive still that knew Sophie's story mm-hmm. definitely made me feel a sense of pressure to not mm-hmm. screw it up. Oh. Yeah. 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 Um, in terms of the this play, The Seat Next to the King, um, where does that... So where does the title come from, and what's the play about? Well, it's interesting with the title, because it actually came to me almost before I finished the play. All of a sudden, this title had popped in my head. Um, the play is about... Uh, it's set in 1964. It's about, uh, about a white man who walks into a public washroom in a Washington, D.C. park, and the next man who happens to come in is a black man, and they're both there looking for sex. And so when I first had come up with the idea of it, it was actually... I, I knew about Bayard Rustin for years. Um, I remember watching a documentary and learning about him and going, wow, why do I not know more about this man? And I just kind of kept searching and searching, and he was the easier one to find. But then all of a sudden, the, the white gentleman, whose name is Walter Jenkins, was someone who t- can totally escaped me. I actually only ran across him. Either it was, uh, I think it was like an advocate article where they talk about these gay scandals in politics. Mm-hmm. And I ran across him and I went, how fascinating that... The two most powerful men in America in 1964, Martin Luther King and President Johnson, had either gay or questioning men right next to them the mm. entire way. Mm. And so, and, and, and not in just like small roles, like, I'm, they're mm. big, like roles. big yeah, yeah. roles. And for Walter, I mean, he, no one really knew about him too much, but until he got caught in, in a Washington scandal himself. But Bayard, everyone knew. And he just kind of kept being pushed back, pushed mm. back. And so, when I thought about the concept of this play, um, I thought, you know, I, I talked to the actors and stuff and said, they, one of the ideas I, I remember thinking about was meeting in the White House. Well, that'd be kind of fun. That'd be kind of fun. But the problem with being in the White House is that there's, they have the conversation they need, they need to have. Where are they going to have this? Mm. Like, mm. This, this is a building that's probably wired. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, we, we learned that from Nixon later <laughs> about all the recordings and such. But... Um, but to have them actually be in a place where they had this commonality, mm-hmm. because they both had been caught in scandals of some sort, mm. involved in the washroom and illicit sex and stuff like that. So they both had had this experience. And it was a very shared experience, despite the fact that they're very two different people. Mm. So, yeah. I was really drawn to the fact that Stephen created this really amazing what-if scenario, because finding out that Bayard Rustin had at one point had a washroom scandal, Walter had at one point had a washroom mm. scandal, completely removed from each other. And for Stephen to say, well, what if mm-hmm. they were in the washroom together mm. was just really fascinating to me. And, yeah, and I just, I, I love I love how beautifully it's, um, it's written. Mm. And I, I love what if scenarios because uh, I'm always thinking about that. Like, I love when you read a history book 
and they talk about another character and you read another history book and they talk about the same character and you read another one and they talk about that same character and you go but that character is so unknown to most people mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, another play I'm thinking about doing that is just centered around that I've, I read three different history books talking about the same person in each of the books and going mm. why do I not know this person and so I love the idea of bringing out characters who we don't know like we, yeah. and I think we should know mm-hmm. like yeah. they, Walter probably a little less so just because I mean while he had a p- position of power in some degree being next to Johnson that's kind of a different story but Baird is someone we should know yeah like we we shouldn't there should there's no reason why we shouldn't know who he is yeah right? I mean he organized many of the rallies mm-hmm. he gave MLK places to speak um, he kind of controlled his agenda mm. and yet he's well, for the he, most part unknown and he, and he inspired the whole idea of nonviolent confrontation in Mm. He was doing it like 20 years before Martin Luther King was doing it. Mm. But the problem with Bayard was, besides the fact of being gay himself, the other problem was that he got caught almost in between um, political movements, I would say. Um, you, you have this, this, we have this strong late 50s, 60s civil rights movement going on, but the World War II era, we don't have the same because people are so focused on the war. Mm-hmm. They weren't there. But then before that, you have like Dubois and all that. So he got caught in this like in-between place. Mm. And he was also, the idea that he was very centered on the peace movement as part of the civil rights movement was something that was a little hard for people to kind of grasp on. Mm. You mean in terms of <clears throat> like general peace in the way that uh, Martin yeah. Luther King's message uh, shifted over time uh, to include, like, pulling out of the Vietnam War? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 He, uh, Baird was very much involved in the, in the, in the Vietnam mm-hmm. uh, conflict and stuff like that and, and, tr- and trying to find a way of getting out of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it was such a volatile period of time. I mean, we, I, we have no yeah. concept of, I don't think, I, of how volatile it was. I mean, it, it, it was incredibly volatile. And because of just the the horror of, of what people were experiencing, the idea of committing to kind of... Pis- what people saw as being passivity, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just to, to peacefulness, was was really difficult. And so, yeah. the, and so the majority of people—not the majority, but many, many people—before you had the the you know the philosophy of nonviolence really come to the fore, were much more aligned to the thinking of Malcolm X, mm-hmm. which was more like we've got to take ours, <coughs> and no matter what we have to do, we have to do it. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of trying to pursue the same ends with no violence, when so much violence was being perpetrated, mm-hmm. was a very hard thing for people to wrap their heads around. Mm-hmm. Well, and the the sheer threat of like when when your major leaders of your movement are being assassinated mm-hmm. yeah, one yeah. after another, like it, yeah, <laughs> the fear and the I I, I you can't I, it's, I just on my world I can't imagine it. I just can't imagine why. And you know, Bayard kind of stuck his nose in there as much as he could, mm-hmm. but Paul and Paul's sexuality was always a. A, a hindrance in that fact, unfortunately. <clears throat> so fact, yeah. Was Later, Baird, be. was Baird out, or was he as out as you could be in that, at that time? That's, I think, the phrase you're. I think you're what he is out as you could be. Mm-hmm. I think that's the phrase because I mean we have to remember that when he was doing all this, everyone knew he was. The FBI mm-hmm. knew. Everyone knew, but um, it was still con- it was still considered an illness. It was still considered mm-hmm. an offense in every state. Uh, it was still considered something you could be locked away for. So it. He was as out as I think he could have been mm-hmm. without it, you know, without actually saying, I'm gay, and that's what I am. But, right. he, I mean, he did later. Obviously, he, you know, when the mo- that movement moved along to kind of sort of catch up to where we're mm-hmm. going, then he could say that type thing much easier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
there's a certain. I mean, you were you were talking just a, a little while ago about the responsibility of telling stories that involve real people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and here you have two real people um, who are uh, who there's living memory of both of them. I mean, maybe they're not well known, but there is living memory. Mm-hmm. Is there a responsibility that either of you feel uh, in telling this particular? Every, imaginary yeah, story every second of writing it <laughs> every second yes. of writing it because and you know <laughs> it, it's it's t- for me it's like here I'm writing two characters who I mean Baird especially was a challenge for me because I had to really think about how how are people going to portray see this I'm not black mm-hmm. you know I mean no no <laughs> really <laughs> I'm not black and so therefore mm-hmm. I'm writing a character who is so predominant in that movement and it's like but I think what it is for a writer who it, it, it's I remember telling Tanisha this very early on it's bridging gaps mm-hmm. bridging like the border like bridging all those things and that's what I loved about writing this piece because it gave me a chance to really learn mm-hmm. and hopefully get a better understanding of these characters and for Walter it was um, a chance to kind of I, I, I'm a big fan of those films from the 1960s any of the, any of the films have gay themes in them because uh, they couldn't say anything about... They couldn't say the words, but right. they had to tell a story without saying the words. Mm-hmm. And for Walter, it was so nice to kind of give a character like that, who, if he'd been in that time period, couldn't have never expressed those words. Right. It was nice to give him those words mm-hmm. and give him a chance to actually speak for himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the combination of us and, and this play for a lot of reasons. Um, I'm not gay, Stephen is. I'm Stephen's not black, I am. Mm-hmm. So we had the in of one of us having the orientation, one of us having the race. It's also a story of two men trying to figure out what it is to be men in a time when the, the definition of men is very limited. Um, And so I loved the idea of bringing a woman to the table and not injecting more male energy into the telling of the story. No, I really did. I really did. And I remember mentioning like the first time I met, I said the reason, you know, Yes, you are a young black woman, but I'm not choosing an essay because you're black. I'm talking. I'm, I'm choosing you because you have an experience that I will never have. Right. That you will have, what once every twenty minutes, maybe every <laughs> half hour. I'll give you an hour just in case you're on the subway. <laughs> but you know, but <laughs> she has an experience that I'm not going to have, mm-hmm. and that's an experience that Bear was going to have. Yeah. And I can write it. I can write to a point, but there's a point where someone like Tanisha, as a director, is going to come in there. And find something that that little bit deeper that I will never hit because I won't have the experience, mm-hmm. and and vice versa. Like there will be moments when I may have questions about the gay aspect where I'm like, Stephen, I, I need you for this, right? And we also have two actors, one of whom is gay and one of whom is not, mm-hmm. um, which is so fascinating. No, it's it's really really exciting, mm-hmm. um, just to see how it to see how it plays out and to see how. Um, how those two very different life ex- experiences come together in the telling of the story, just even so far in two, mm. in two days, yeah. has been has been exciting. Well, it's challenging for them is, and, it, and they they're learning from each other, which I think is really mm-hmm. beautiful. Yeah. So Connor is learning, like, you know, what am I doing that might be, you know, how does someone portray me as being gay? Like that sort of aspect of it. But for 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 uh, Kwaku, it's an, it's a different aspect altogether. Like there's a different they're looking at each other and how to see each other, mm. and how is it to be like closed? Mm. 
Like, we live in a day and age we're very fortunate that we can mostly be open about our sexuality. Mm-hmm. Mostly. I'm not saying all the time, but but we're very lucky in that sense. And so to see another actor learning how to be a closeted man mm-hmm. can be very challenging, too. Yeah. yeah. It's quite a connection they're having together. Mm. Yeah. No, they're great together. That's good. Um, if I can ask, uh, for both of you, because um, I always like to find out why people chose to, to do things in the theater. <laughs> Um, like we are what? asking the same question. Well, I mean, we all ask. It's, it's the money, of course, right? Yes, of yes. course, you know, because the elites and the money and the things. Oh my god, all my we, money is falling on the floor. Yeah, we all. I mean, I'm always curious, and you know, we don't often ask each other, like, why did you choose to do this? So I'm curious, uh, whoever wants to go first, like, what what is it about the theater that you love? Why did you start doing it? How did you start doing? it? Yeah, you're gonna make me okay. I'm go first. Okay, uh, so I didn't grow up on theater, which is fast. I I, um, I I come from a really small community in Manitoba of a hundred people. There's no theater in. in Man- <laughs> we we actually I remember one day um, we had a discussion about I was on it was a Facebook thing where about Shakespeare being taught in schools, and I, I you mentioned that oh, it should be taught in drama class. That's where it should be. But and I had to say. If you have a drama class, because <laughs> I didn't, ah. have, I didn't have a drama class. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would have to have gone after school forever, uh, and get my parents to pick me up every day. It would never have worked. But for me, writing was. Um, I started to connect on. I loved writing people's words more than anything else because often we don't get to hear like, especially with history. Especially, I love history. Someone asked me once why I'm not a historian, but what I like about theater is that I get to write people's words that wouldn't normally get to speak them sometimes mm-hmm. um, and to hopefully find those words and I'm, I'm learning that more as I go along mm-hmm. um, I did do uh, theater in university and such and the playwriting was really something was I want to just write characters I loved writing characters when you were in university were you there for playwriting or were you sort of both um, I did <clears throat> I stupidly tried to do a double major in film and theater mm. <laughs> <laughs> Never do a double major in film and theater, I've discovered. Because you end up doing, like, three film productions and, like, four theater productions in the same semester. And it's, like, it's yeah, it's wild. Um, the playwriting was just... I'd written a play when I was in university early on uh, just for fun. I took, like, a, a general theater course. I realized just how much I loved it. And I realized I'd gone back and looked at stuff I'd done in high school and realized I liked bringing scenes. But I never wrote full-out plays. I just read these little scenes. Um, and I, but I kept reading books and I'm trying to find those stories in between the books like mm-hmm. what were the care, conversations they would have had mm-hmm. so I just I just love the immediacy of theater I love the organic nature you can watch something and see it two different ways or three different ways each time you go I love that as somebody who didn't grow up with theater I'm yeah. curious about what made you decide to go to university for theater I didn't originally I actually started in music okay <laughs> I started. I know it's weird. I, get, I went through all the fine arts. I swear. I, uh, I started. I, I started in music. Mm-hmm. Realized I would hate music if I kept doing music. I went into general studies. Uh, I had done a f- uh, documentary film in high school, and people really loved my documentary. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Oh, okay, me actually going to film." So I went to film, and then I discovered that well, the only way to do film in, at, at university was to actually do more theater because you had to know all the actors. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true, I mean, but then when I went into theater, the theater section, it was just the hands-on approach. Mm-hmm. It was less about tech, per se. I mean, there are, is tech in theater, obviously, but there was something about being more hands-on I loved that... Fi- I remember one, one experience I had while I was directing a film, and my camera person was getting mad at me because I wouldn't tell him to start taping. 
I kept saying, no, I need to talk to the actors first. We need to talk about what's going on, this scene, and everything. So no, just film it like 15 times. We'll figure it out. I'm like going... And I'm like, okay, that's... Yeah. No, you know, it's like... I'm be, when I'm running a story or play, it's like I'm with those characters. I'm living with those mm-hmm. characters, and they don't leave. Yeah. Like, that's the weird thing when you're writing plays. They don't leave. They, mm-hmm. They're there. And that's what I love with theater, that mm-hmm. you're constantly living with them. Mm-hmm. Once, they're, once they're filmed, and once they're like that... It's, it's recorded. It's done. Yeah. But theater and plays, they can be done so many different ways. I love that. That's that's very true. A movie only gets filmed once mm-hmm. and a play can be uh, is performed many times and interpreted many times. Yeah. Um, what's, your, what's your theater story? So I didn't start in theater either. Um, I... But I've, but I've always been very much an artist. I began writing very young, writing poetry. Um, as a child, I loved to dance. I studied Afro jazz for a little while. And then when I got to um, university, I began studying broadcasting. Um, I was very interested in studying radio and television. And uh, because I I was interested in being like a broadcast journalist, that didn't last long. (laughs) Um, Although I'm still fascinated with journalism and good journalism versus bad journalism. Um, And then... Uh, but music was always my my love. So I started singing very young. I started songwriting very young. And um, I I was a singer-songwriter for years and years. From the time I was 14, I I was in my room writing songs, and that was my main love. I ended up going to a school called the Harris Institute, and I studied audio engineering and business and music business. Mm -hmm. And I really was planning to be a recording artist. That was my thing. And then I had some weird experiences with A&R people. And and that whole time that I was performing and playing like coffee houses and stuff, I was so fall I was falling so deeply in love with performance. And I think that theater kind of became a very natural extension of that. It's like when you're an artist, you're always looking for another way to express yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I was spending years on stages singing songs and I was like, Well, what if I told stories that were longer than three or four minutes long? <laughs> like, you know? Because I had loved writing short stories as a kid. Mm. So I was like, What if I just you know come back to being at a desk writing that has nothing to do with music just telling stories and that's kind of how I started playing around with writing plays and then because I'd been performing on stage and felt really comfortable on stage as a singer um, one day I very randomly auditioned for a play there was like a, a audition posted in now or something and I it was the vagina monologues mm-hmm. And I showed up to this audition, crashed the audition. People are like, why are you here? <laughs> and I did the audition and I got it. And that changed the trajectory of my life. Because after I got it, and that play is very much tied to a movement called V-Day, mm-hmm. which is um, an anti-violence against women movement. Yeah. The year after I joined it as an actor, I took over as producer and ended up doing activist theater for about eight years. Mm-hmm. And uh, several plays um, that were tied to V-Day. And then thought, I should probably study. So then I... (laughs) But I was torn because I was working full time Mm. at this point. I was like, I was a grown up. And I was like, how am I going to study? And Seneca College, God bless them, had the only continuing education theater program in the country. Mm. And I was able to work full time and go to theater school at night. Mm. And yeah. Program doesn't exist anymore. Of course, yeah, of course not. No, of course. no, it folded about three years ago. Uh, but it was amazing, mm. and I don't know how I did it. I had energy then, ah, ah. but but that was it. So by the time I finished that, 
I was like, kind of like, okay, theater is, I'm not done with music. I will always make music, but theater is really kind of the course that I think I'm on at this point. Mm-hmm. And just continued acting and acting naturally led to, to directing. And I mm-hmm. absolutely love it. I love how people, some people know from the beginning that it's what they're going to do, but I'm always fascinated by the people who took, like, went in one direction and then, like, suddenly they were going down a different path. Yeah, I love those stories. Yeah, yeah I, I, what I liked about hearing that was like, you know, there's a, there's a there's a moment where all of a sudden you realize that's what I need to be doing. Mm-hmm. And it took, took a while for me. It was uh, to this contest. I actually came in second ten years ago in this contest, mm-hmm. and that was this moment where I went, oh, someone likes what I wrote, mm-hmm. and that was that moment. And that's when I started to write really unabashedly and just start kept writing anything I could write mm-hmm. type things. So I like hearing about that moment. Um, as a as a as a fellow history nerd. Um, is there is there a particular period in history that you gravitate to, or are you just like you're hungry for history? Um, I, I'm a huge U.S. presidential buff. Mm. I am. It's it's embarrassing actually. <laughs> uh, so I, I like and Theodore Roosevelt is just is just like the king to me because um, I've I've actually gone on a tour. I went on a tour of his, of his birthplace in New York City, and I sort of took over the tour. <laughs> um, what happened was was that. The tour guy would talk about stuff, and someone there's like eight Americans on the tour with me, and they would ask a question. And he'd go, "Oh, I don't really know that." And like the first one was like his kids. I'm like, <laughs> I said to him, I said, I, I said, "Oh, actually, it's you know Alice, Theodore Junior, Kermit, Ethel, Archibald, Quinton." <laughs> what? Like, like, just, <laughs> just like that. And and like, and he's like, "Oh, well, thank you very much." Yeah, yeah. And then he asked another question, and they didn't know the answer. And I answered the question. Oh my! <laughs> and God. by the end of it, they would listen to him, and they would look at me asking the questions, and I'm like, "Oh." <laughs> and, that's I've always awkward. been fascinated by U.S. presidents since I was like mm. ten. Seriously, mm. my parents bought us the World Book Encyclopedias, and the only parts of the World Book Encyclopedia that are in color are the U.S. presidents. And I just fell in love. Mm. I was really, you know, and then of course you learn the sort of lives of presidents, and that's where I, I I love hearing the stories that you just don't get to hear about. Mm-hmm. And I love going to sites because they'll tell you, like, no matter how long that person was in office, like thirty days, two hundred days, <laughs> eight mm-hmm. years. That president is the best president that ever lived. Mm. And I love that. And I love how they gloss over stuff. Ah! Like, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Have you ever been, ever been in Mount Vernon? I have not. Seven years ago, they finally acknowledged that he had slaves on the Mount Vernon tour. Did it? Seven so, years. Not in the 2000s. <laughs> Horrible. I mean, yeah. I so they, that. they the, that tour, they had never brought up the nope. fact that he had slaves? Nope. No, it's not they, pretty. They would walk through the slave quarter, and he would, I imagine they would just kind of... Oh, so, look at, there. oh, look at this is their barn. And walked up. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know. Yeah, that's where, the help, that's where the help lived. Yeah. And, but even now, they preface everything with, but he freed his slaves. Oh, yeah. But he freed his slaves. And I finally asked, I said, you mean he intentionally gave freedom to his slaves? And they said, well, no, he, he died. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like... Okay, no, no, no. Giving freedom to slaves it means that there's an intention of realizing this person, he's a human being. I should offer them their freedom. Oh, I don't know. Like, no, he died. There's, there's <laughs> interesting things about being Canadian and watching America. And one of the things that I am fascinated by and sometimes a little jealous of is their ability to mythologize Oh, and lie to themselves. Canadians are really bad at lying to themselves. Oh, I would, I would argue that. <laughs> oh, no, 
Please, I will be. No, I, will, I mean, I, will I, be no, I mean, as I as we approach Canada 150, mm-hmm. we are steeped in lies. No, that's true. Nope. <laughs> I stand corrected. Yeah. I, we're bad at mythologizing. Yeah, no. We are. We are. We can lie to ourselves, but we're bad at building like grand lies. Oh, grandiosity around, and yeah, like, those kinds of. Well, they're like, so there's, jingoistic, there's no, right? There's so, no. Uh, you know, Sir John A. Macdonald never told a lie. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sir John A. was a drunk. And, and we know it, and we everybody knows about it. My favorite, my favorite John A. story is like he was drunk and doing an abba- a debate. It's his turn to talk. He leans over the podium and throws up on the floor. And his response is, "Ladies and gentlemen, every time I hear my opponent speak, I get sick to my stomach." <clears throat> he was a master charismatic man like, yeah. in that sense. I mean, despite yeah. <laughs> all his failings, he yes. was so charismatic. But, yeah. but we're bad at, at that kind mm. of like grand mythology. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's probably why we don't. You know, as Canadians, I mean, we have some great playwrights, but history is a huge problem for us. Mm. We're running plays. Like, I don't know what it is. It's really hard. It's really a lot hard. of times when we try to do history plays, we're very literal. I don't think that mm. we, because we don't mythologize, we're bad at yeah. lying in the story. Like, we're, we have, we sort of, like, follow a little too closely. Whereas Americans are like, eh, sure, whatever, free slaves. <laughs> <clears throat> or you know they're like mm-hmm. they're a little more flexible as long as it builds that mythology oh yeah I know I mean yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's also very uh, many sad things about watching America as it is implode yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know the problem is that, that that America imploding affects us directly because as America implodes it's garbage infects Everyone. Oh. Yes. Everyone. Yeah, not, yeah. It's amazing. We may be connected on a border, but it's affecting every single mm-hmm. nation in this world. You can't yeah. have you cannot have a country that has that yields that kind of power implode and not have it affect no, the planet. No, no. No, that's that's one of the best arguments for not having a superpower. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Um, but again, we're digressing from Yes, we and are. That is, that is my own because fault. of presidential Sorry, history. I, yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, I have, a, I have a great uh, Lincoln play about him, with him being gay in it. That that I would. Oh. I oh yeah no no it's 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 he slept with a number of guys. Okay, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Anyway, I'm, anyway, curious, anyway. I'm curious yeah, about. Yeah, so. Do you have? Uh, are there things about? As we live in Canada, and all, is there Canadian historical things? Or are you very much like American presidents? As um, your thing. No, I, I actually uh, the one play I'm working on is a play about the Fenian raids of eighteen sixty six and it's it's something very personal to me because my great great grandfather fought in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's something I'm I I'm starting to trying to dive into a little more Canadian history and get some better aspect of what makes us us. Mm. Um, but again, there's so many dark periods that we don't know how to we don't necessarily hide it per se. We just don't but talk we about just it. don't Talk about it in the same right way. You know, it's it's hard to explain. It's like it's you know with 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 the, with the states they really try to hide things, mm-hmm. like they really hide the bad things really badly. Um, but with us, you know, I don't know. I think the states. Okay, so we we both have tons of crap to yeah. want to hide. Um, I think the knowledge of what is horrible in the states is much more or much more overt mm-hmm. than the knowledge of what is horrible in Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember my dad, you know, my parents, my father moved here in 1967 and said that, you know, he would, he would rather, after having lived here for a couple of years, he would rather have had the blatantness of American mm-hmm. racism yeah. than the subtlety of Canadian racism. Because Canadian racism is very, uh, we don't look at it. Yeah. Like, American racism is in your face and yeah. Canadians just don't see it. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. We just like to, white Canadians like to not, like we're very good at ignoring things like residential schools, like racism, like direct mm-hmm. racism against yeah. uh, people of color. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. something we are very good at just not looking at. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and, you know, I think that's, that's another thing that we don't tend to acknowledge in our theater. Um, again, our histories are mostly told by white men. Mm-hmm. And so the history books talk about the white men. Mm-hmm. And so we don't, there are stories that we're missing because they just weren't written down or they're passed down orally and in other ways and they don't get to be on stage or in on our TVs or whatever. And because whoever tells stories almost always tells stories that make themselves look best in the stories. Oh, yeah. well, absolutely. And, and center them and center themselves in the story. Absolutely. So until you start getting stories that are written from multiple other perspectives, mm-hmm. everything is going to be a very skewed version of history. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of my favorite historical books is actually an account of the Upper Canada Rebellion, but it is not it is told through uh, diary excerpts mm. surrounding it. So it's like, instead of like one, because we use, we have like two perspectives generally in, in most of the history, history right. books. It's like the, like what actual people were thinking at the time. Mm-hmm. About, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so now that we've, we've, we've talked around a lot of topics, yeah. um, the, the, the the seat next to the can, yeah. um, as you are, you've done, had your three rehearsals so far, mm-hmm. um, you are, uh, do you know what venue you have? Yeah. Uh, Theatre Pass Mariah Main Space. Awesome, that's a great space. It is a yeah. great space. That is a great space. It, it's it's yeah. not only is it like an, a wonderful size of space, it doesn't feel massive, but still has a quite a number of seats in it, but it's also really close to the fringe venue too. So there's a lot, and it has a neat personality. It just has a lot of character, that space. Yeah. I've always loved that space. Theatre Pass Mariah is a great, like... The backspace and the main space are awesome. They If you use them right, if you use yeah. the, ma- the backspace right... You can do amazing things mm-hmm. in it, I know. and the main space has so much. Yeah, know, there's it's, something about it. It's a lot of like grit, a lot like, of character yeah. to it. Yeah, it's also a great theater company too. I might mm. add. I mean, they they're really trying to break down some walls in theater. There, and mm-hmm. that's one theater. Well, that's does. what their name means. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that works out well. Yeah, but I mean, but it's it is. It's like yeah. compared to other theaters in the city, who are trying. Yeah, they are doing it. And you're right. I was thinking this year. It is like because of the new fringe venue. It is like. It's the closest of the venues to that, which is Three really blocks. great. Yeah, it's nice. It's a really great uh, flyering location. You can just sit <laughs> right down there and then back here for a beer, you guys. Or, you know, the, the, yeah, I, I, I used to, I've worked the ticket booth, and there's mm-hmm. always that couple who comes in and goes, what's playing close by? 15 minutes from now. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Theater pass from around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's good for that. Yeah, but the, on the set space, it was whatever was at uh, the annex. The, the Randolph, the yeah. 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 Yeah, it's, um, it's different to see it move. I'm really interested in seeing how the hub works in this new space. I'm really interested, too, yeah. because when we fall into patterns, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there was a certain pattern that we followed at, at Transac when, yep. it, was, mm-hmm. when oh, it was there. I remember Transac. Remember, remember the dance parties at Transac? Oh, yeah. and they were course, so great. You know, everybody outside, and then at 11 o'clock, everybody out of the inside. Inside. <laughs> Come on, you got to go inside. It's residential. And then uh, all of the, they move over to Ed's. And the vibe changes, yeah. and and um, I remember something happened in the first year when they started like moving like a van with like baffles on it, and like closed in like the the area for drinking because we were too oh, loud yeah. for, the, oh. for the residential around there. So like every event, every every area changes. I think this is their biggest one. 
this year, I think. Yeah, the space that the space that they've allotted Jeez. to the to the that the tent is huge. Well, there's that parking kind of lot area, like that whole, and then there's that, that tennis rink. court thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot going on. They're, this is the first year. At least I, I think that they're doing this. I, I heard that they they have like an artist area. Oh. Um, I'd heard I'd heard that that was something they were they were going to do, which is I think. Something that a number of other fringes have done. Montreal had at their fringe office. They had, uh, you know, drop in. They actually had like you know people. You could walk in and ev- the artists. They had coffee, snacks, and places to sit. Some people would sleep. Some people would uh, stuff fly like do their flyering and like get stuff um, ready. I love the that idea of having thing. artists from the shows just kind of hang out and be available to talk to people. I mm-hmm. love that idea. Oh, I like, love that idea. When you don't have to worry about like selling your show mm-hmm. to people because that's always the problem with the fringe tent is you want to talk to your fellow artists but you're also concentrating on like selling your <laughs> show so it's like this strange like I want to talk to you but come to my show. Like, yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Like, so awkward. Shake your hand one hand hand out your fly with the other. It's like so <laughs> awkward. It's great to have like this spot where we can just hang out. Mm-hmm. And just be. Yeah. 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 Um, I know Edmonton has had like a they call it the green room but it's like a spot where people can hang out and get ready for their show and cool. then head off to the venue so it's like it would be great to see that kind of thing happening here oh, that'd be awesome <laughs> what is there is there something that you're particularly looking forward to about about Fringe this year I'm just excited to be back at Fringe I haven't done Fringe since 2010 mm-hmm. um, I did it in 8, 9 and 10 and then back in 17 so to actually be part of it as opposed to just an audience member mm-hmm. is going to be fun um, it's an energy that I've been away from for mm-hmm. a while I think for me what it is is like you know as an artist you know you're constantly like renting a venue you're <laughs> doing your own thing right and this thing it's it's, it's everything's kind of set up for me right now mm-hmm. for, the, have the, for us to have this show mm-hmm. and that the, the potential of an audience coming into this show is you know that, that's different then let's say if I just rented like the Red Sandcastle Theater, I'd get like, oh, man, I might get 30 people. I'm like, but this actually has a chance like of actually being seen by a lot of people. And that's really quite exciting. It's mm-hmm. uh, a little scary. Uh, the one <laughs> thing exciting. I love about Fringe is that, you know, as, as an independent producer, it's the time when there are people looking for something to see. Mm-hmm. Like it's a concentrated 10 day period where there's an audience that just wants to know what they should see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're out willing to see it. Whereas at other times, like if you rented the Red Sandcastle Theater, um, getting your audience out can be difficult because you have to get them off their couch. Whereas right. during Fringe, they're hungry they're walking for around, something yeah. to see. They're active. Yeah. And I'm so excited. I mean, having won the award Mm -hmm. I think is a really wonderful wonderful thing because I think that that will just um, there will be a natural curiosity to see what that play is about and and I don't think that they will be disappointed in the play because I think Mm -hmm. that it really is a very poignant story and what I love about it is how simple it is and sometimes people you know they besmirch the word simple I love Mm -hmm. simple as opposed to as opposed to simplistic which I find is a different thing Mm -hmm. but um there's a, the, the play is, is very simple. It's two men who are both kind of dealing with a very innate need that isn't really allowed to be in that time and place and trying to negotiate it, mm. you know, and that's, and that's all it is. Mm. And yet there's so much that happens and there's so much emotion in it. And, and it's, it's funny and it's sexy and it's heartbreaking and it's, it is, yeah. it's all of those things. Mm. And, um, 
Yeah, and I'm just really happy to be able to spend to spend this time with it. Hmm. And for me, I'm just happy to have you know a director who's ridiculously passionate about a show like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's when I first when Tanja emailed me about directing the show. It was just the idea of wow, this director's really passionate, like really passionate. Like she cares so much about this piece, and because I remember, I, I remember, I told her, I said, I had one person read it beforehand, and it was someone who wasn't very passionate, mm. and it's, and I, I felt that passion for it, but it's nice to have someone who has equal passion yeah. for it, and that makes a big difference. And everyone, like, if, like our, our stage manager, our two actors, everyone's really putting everything into this. Um, my partner's putting everything into this. We're, <laughs> we're just talking about building part of our set, and it's like everyone's really wanting to make this. Mm-hmm. show this really simple show into something that can be quite an experience for mm-hmm. people to see I think yeah. it's amazing had you given any thought to directors when you submitted this play or were you just like I'll put submit it and I'll worry about production <laughs> when it I, I well first I it's again it was, yeah, I, I, I feel horrible to say this but I literally put the play in like three days before the entry date game <laughs> and I because I won, won like, about 10 years previously second place mm-hmm. I looked at it and I said it was, oh yeah it had like nine characters in it all, all this and you know this piece I really like this piece I'm just gonna put it in mm. and because I don't have any allusions to you know that oh this is the great piece that's gonna unite the nation type of thing you know that it was just I'm writing and going this is very simple it's outside of my boundary a little bit and I loved it mm. and I loved doing it and I remember writing it in four days mm. like there were like it, it, it came so easily. Like, you know, sometimes you break a piece and it gets to be a struggle. This was never a struggle. Mm. It was just a very, again, simple piece, two men just facing something together. Mm. And I think, you know, that simplicity, well, simplicity of that scenario, and but the depth that you can get into those characters. I remember just knowing, I think this is the piece I should enter. Mm. This is the piece I should enter. But I had no illusions that I was going to be. You never know. There's no, 70 course, plays yeah. in this contest. You know, and there's some great writers out in this. We have some mm-hmm. great playwrights in this city right yeah. now. Like, it's incredible. And you don't know who's going to be in that contest. Yeah. So you just kind of, you hope. You're, I mean, as far as, uh, you know, winning that particular, like, the best play, yeah. you're you're up there with um, some great playwrights like Cat <laughs> Sandler and Ince Choi. You know, there's... There's been some some success that comes out of out of uh, that particular uh, 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 award. Well, and I'm not, you know, I, I had the great fortune of seeing kind of from the outs observing perspective that that within his choy mm. because I was actually stage managing a show at the, the Randolph Theater mm-hmm. at the same time. And watching these crowds lining up the mm-hmm. door and going, well, we're not going to get the patrons back, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but, 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 no, exactly. But what I, why I did remember seeing was I saw an audience who was so hungry for a show that they could relate to. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I said, I went, you are a smart man. You are a very smart man. You found something. You found something. And it doesn't happen all the time, you no. know? And I, again, I don't want to make any illusions that, ooh, that's, you know movies and no. Broadway and all that sort of stuff. That, that's not what it is. It's, you know, it's being able to put a play out that people can really fall in love with mm. and understand and just feel something by the end of the night. Yeah. That, that's what I want. I want them to yeah. feel something. I just mm. want them to feel something by the end of the night. Yeah. Yeah, my goal, I mean, my goal with directing always is to try and nurture empathy. Mm-hmm. And so if there is someone in that room who might have, you know, 
not even overtly homophobic tendencies, but might just not be as open to the reality of the breadth of people that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, if they can leave a little bit more open, then to me, I've done my job. Mm. Well, that's a great note to finish on. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much.